Father, we thank you for the season we're in. Father, for the opportunity to be with friends and family, for all the the wonderful memories that come out of this time of year. But most of all, Father, for the memory that gives it reason to exist, the memory of your son's birth and his arrival as promised uh, to bring salvation to the world. We thank you, Father, for that gift more than any other. And it's one we're continually reminded of, Father, in the way we come to the word, hear what you have to tell us, share it with others. Father, all of this made possible because you kept a promise. And you continue to keep promises, and you will keep those you've made to us concerning our eternal future. And, Father, that's what we're studying tonight in Romans 8, the promises you've made, the security that comes with that. And, Father, we pray that we'd have an eternal perspective out of what we learned tonight that would take us through the difficult times of our daily lives so that as we come through these things well, we're well prepared for what follows in the age to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get back into chapter 8. This is... Paul's climactic explanation of your security, the security you have in salvation in Christ. Remember where we started in this section back in chapter 6. Paul was explaining what changed for us as Christians as a result of putting our faith in Christ. And in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's been going through all the ramifications. Chapter 6 is where we learned that we received a new spirit given to us by the Holy Spirit, made in the nature of Christ's sinless spirit. So to put it simply, you have a sinless spirit now that you are believing. And then in chapter 8, we learned that for a time we're going to contend with our sinful fleshly body, so that means that we will continue to experience some of the vestiges of our past, including we still have to see our body die at some point, so that's a part of our reality even still. And then chapter 8, where we are now, Paul says, nevertheless, despite still having sin in our life, we are still righteous in our spirit, made so by Christ. So though we still experience sin, We are still righteous in our spirit. Furthermore, when Christ lived on earth in his flesh, he satisfied all the requirements of the law, including paying the law's price for sin, which he didn't commit. Christ did all the right things, and then he suffered the penalty that's only due for those who do wrong things. Therefore, God can be just in assigning us Christ's sinless spirit by our faith, giving us credit for what Christ accomplished in his spirit on our behalf. Our new spirit is alive in Christ, having been credited with meeting the terms of the law and free, therefore, from the penalty of the law. So literally, the spirit that's in you is a spirit that God counts as having accomplished the law because it is a spirit descended from Christ who did that for us. Which now means we live our life in peace with God, set our minds on eternal things, because we know that's our future. And, Paul says, as we've studied already in the first part of this chapter, all of these good things remain true despite your sin today, because your spirit remains Christ-like. Your body goes to the grave, and when it does, so goes the condemnation that it deserves. And that means that as you stand before Christ in your judgment in one day to come, you stand there approved in the spirit, because the spirit you'll have is the one that Christ won for us through the victory on the cross. So Paul opens chapter 8 with that famous statement, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There will be no condemnation at our judgment moment, but there is now no condemnation either. So that when the Father looks upon you or me in our status as Christians, those who've come to faith, all he sees is your sinless spirit, that righteousness won by Christ and credited to you by faith. Now, Paul's going to continue from there through the first half of this chapter, contrasting the way of life we have and the future we have as a believer versus the way of life 
and the future that an unbeliever has. And he, we did this last week. He used several arguments to reassure the believer that we have been changed by our faith. And although we still stumble, and although we still have concerns about our sin, and we worry sometimes even about our salvation, none of those things are evidence of a concern. They're actually evidence of a changed heart. Remember we said this last time, only believers worry about losing salvation. Because before we had that understanding, we were in a state of mind that is hostile to God. Now, though, we can call Him Father. Where before we lived in the flesh on a path to death, Paul says, now we operate with the Spirit and have the mind of Christ. Where before we were enslaved by sin, today we have a choice of whether to sin or not to sin. Before we were distant from God, today He lives in us, testifying to our hearts that we are His. These are all experiences, Paul says, are unique to the believer, and therefore they reinforce for us that there is in fact something different about us as a result of our faith. Even on the darkest days when we have doubts, these things still exist true for us. We still have this sense of who we are now that's different. We still have a concern of things we never cared about before. Those things are proof, Paul said, that we have something different. These experiences become our assurance that we do not have condemnation because a father does not condemn his children. The Lord does not condemn a perfect spirit. The Lord didn't die for us, only to then have to make us die for ourselves as well. That leads us to the second half of Romans 8. So if the first half of Romans 8 was Paul reassuring the believer through these various examples that we have something and it is sure and it is lasting, now he moves to a broader context. At the second half of chapter 8, he begins to consider external threats to your salvation. Where the first half is really you worrying for yourself, the second half of this chapter is Paul addressing, what about those things that could come against me outside myself? And specifically one matter more than anything else. The question of suffering. That's the topic for the second half of chapter 8. Suffering. Sometimes this concern is expressed as, why do bad things happen to good people? The question presupposes that the universe hands out consequences according to personal value or personal worth. That is to say, those who do wrong will suffer bad things, while those who do well will only experience good things. Sometimes that's characterized by the term karma. That's how a lot of people think about the way the world should work, which is why they're confused when they see bad things happening to good people. To them, that feels like there's something broken. And sometimes, though we don't use the term karma, obviously, sometimes Christians fall into this same line of thought, although we assign all of that responsibility for good and bad outcomes to God, not to chance or something you know, undefined. But we still have the same concerns. Why does God appoint bad things to good people? Why does he let his children suffer? Because Christians may tend to think that our relationship with God should assure us of something better in this life. And therefore we might ask, might our suffering, for whatever reason, suggest that our eternal security is in doubt? Or if God truly loves us and we have no condemnation, then why does he let bad things happen to us? Why would Christians ever have to suffer? Why would the Lord treat his children no differently than he seems to treat the rest of the world in regard to many of these concerns that we share with the world? And it is a legitimate question. But when you ask it, when you entertain it, you're thinking too narrowly about God's purpose in our life and in the creation itself. So for the rest of this chapter, Paul addresses the question of suffering. Why does God permit suffering? And what does suffering say about our eternal security? And he does it on both levels that I just mentioned. He starts by looking first at God's plan for creation, and then he'll turn to talking about the individual. 
So verse 18 is where we pick up. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. All right, well, it's obvious to see Paul's moved on to a topic of suffering. But actually, his topic here starts a verse earlier than the one I read. He begins to introduce where he's going back in verses 16 and 17. We covered those last week. But if you notice there at the end of 16 and 17, Paul introduces this idea of suffering as part of the Christian experience. He says, just as we will share in Christ's glory in an age to come, we will also share in Christ's experiences while he was on earth. And that is principally the experiences of Christ's suffering. God's children will know suffering on earth for the same reason that Christ knew suffering on earth. And that is because the enemy seeks to persecute those who belong to God, and the sin of the world serves as the enemy's toolbox, which he then uses to stand in the way of God's purpose. So then Paul moves directly into this discussion now. So having introduced it by comparing us to Christ, he now begins to examine it. And he says, the first thing we should do is put suffering in perspective. Now, when I say the word suffering, by the way, don't think too concretely about, oh, persecution or someone being martyred. I mean, think about it when you're having marital problems. Think about it when you're having kid problems. Think about it when you're having health problems. Think about it when you're having neighbor problems. Think about all the things we all talk about that we wish we could get away from. And the general collective effect that has on your life, that's suffering. And some days you have days better than others, seasons better than others. And then there's those moments in life that are just, you know, crises. And we wonder, where is God in those moments? That's the thing he's addressing here. The thing that might cause you to have doubt at some level about who you are in Christ, or if you are in Christ, or is God still on your side, or why does he let these things happen to me, and all of the misery that we put into our mind around these things. That's the topic here. And Paul says, start with an eternal perspective. He says, the sufferings of your present time, or life on earth, are not comparable to the glory that is going to be revealed. That's where you start anytime you broach this topic. Anytime someone asks you that question, why do bad things happen to good people? You start with this basic perspective on eternity. You cannot evaluate outcomes until all is said and done. You cannot judge anything until the end. Remember the story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? Let me just reread a piece of it for you. In 1619, Jesus telling the story said, Now there was a rich man, and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. It goes from there. But in just that section, you see already the point that Jesus is making and certainly the one that Paul's making. If you try to assess God's goodness for each of these two men, 
If you tried to make that assessment prior to their deaths, you would have been working with only part of the data. You would have been looking at a moment rather than the whole story. But after they died, the full story became known. So according to what Jesus taught, the rich man, who in this story is an unbeliever, he received good things in life. That in itself is a stunning revelation. An unbeliever can be blessed by God's choice in having good things in life. Conversely, you have this man who is the opposite, the poor man, who is by God's choice appointed bad things. That's the implication of what Abraham says when he's speaking of what each man received. It was by God's choice that he would be in a place of suffering for at least a period of time. That was God's choice for the man, and yet, in both cases, it did not reflect the man's true relationship with God. The mere fact that God granted that man earthly riches said nothing about God's ultimate pleasure with that man. Instead, it was a limited benefit that disappeared in eternity. Following death, that man began to experience his eternal existence, which was far less desirable. And then conversely, the man who suffered most of his life on earth, again, by the sovereign will of God, he saw great comfort. And so now you begin to understand that the Lord's love truly rested on that man despite his poor circumstances on earth. And so the story teaches two fundamental truths. First, God lets his children suffer for his own purposes. And secondly, our relationship with God cannot be measured by the quality of our earthly life. You have no right to feel self-pity. You have no right to claim to be the martyr. And neither can you rest on the fact that you have a big home, three cars, two and a half kids, and a large 401k. Those things have no reflection on whether God is truly pleased with you or not. On what basis is He pleased with anyone? Only on the basis of His Son's work for their sake, and that person's acceptance of that work. So obviously Christ's own life is the ultimate example of this principle, right? Think about what Christ experienced. Christ suffered in ways none of us ever will, since he experienced eternal separation from the Father. That's something we'll never know. To say nothing of the pain and the suffering on the cross. And yet, we also know Christ is the only beloved Son of the Father. There is no one that God the Father loves more than his own Son. So, we clearly cannot measure the Father's pleasure in Christ by looking at what happened to him during his life on earth, can we? As Isaiah said, Isaiah 53.10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Do you notice the before and after quality of that one verse in Isaiah? It starts with, the father's pleased to crush his son. But in doing so, it ends by saying, the father would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the father would be on his son. So he's referring at the end there to the glory Christ will enjoy when he rules from the seat of David over the world that God gives him as his inheritance. So he starts in suffering, ends in glory. So Christ's example sets the pattern for everyone. Christ experienced suffering while on earth, which is not a judge or a good evaluation of whether the Father is pleased in him. Quite the opposite. The Father was very pleased in him. And we too have to do the same. We have to wait to see the end of our story. You won't see that until you're in the age with Christ. And that's the age Paul's speaking about when he says, your present sufferings can't be compared to what's in store for you in that age. If you could look ahead to see what God has planned for you in the age to come, you would stop thinking about your problems right now. They would be absolutely meaningless to you. They would be fleeting. They would be trivial. They, they wouldn't even, there would be not space in your brain to entertain them, 
for all the other things you'd have to contemplate were you to see what God has planned for you. Right? It, it, it just, that's the nature of things. It's nothing what you have today compared to what's coming. You might compare it to the relationship between the pain of childbirth and the joy of having a child for years. Right? A few hours of discomfort. I mean, women make such a big deal over this. A few hours... A few hours of discomfort can't compare to the years and years of joy that a child can bring into a family, right? Moving on. And so the same goes for what we're talking about here. You can't lose that eternal perspective on suffering. Because if you do, if, in other words, if you become myopic, if you let your eyes drop from eternal matters to earthly matters, if all you're thinking about is woe is me under some set of circumstances, then it's the beginning of the potential to let the, that your appreciation of God's love erode. You start to think less and less about that because you're too worried about yourself. So if you're having an especially bad day, especially bad week, year, season, that does not mean God stopped loving you. It does not mean God stopped caring. It does not mean He is not listening. There is something God is doing for your benefit, but for some reason, that benefit depends on your suffering. That benefit could only be achieved through your suffering. For if it could have been achieved some other way, God would have used that other way. And you're not alone. Because Paul says, the entire creation is in the same boat with you. In verse 19 through 22, Paul describes the suffering of the creation. He's speaking literally here of the entire universe, everything God created in the first week. And in verse 19, Paul says that entire creation is anxiously longing for the arrival of the next age. And what that anxiously longing in Greek could also be translated as eager anticipation. So there is a desire or a longing for the arrival of what is to come And that's shared by all that is in creation. Now, you might ask at this point, well, how does something inanimate, like a mountain or the oceans or a star, how can those things be longing for something? Well, first of all, Paul's not talking here in terms of literally a conscious longing, like consciousness, necessarily. What he's referring to is the creation's situation under the curse that he pronounced back in Genesis 3 as a result of the sin of Adam. If you know the story, of course, in Genesis 3, when he enters the garden and finds what woman and man have done, he pronounces a curse on the earth, which referred to his creation. That doesn't mean that the creation itself is consciously aware of its own fallen state, but what he's saying is it exists in an unnatural way, in an unnatural state. For example, it experiences death now. It experiences disease. It experiences a wearing out process. It experiences corruption. Uh, Things rust. They break. They fall apart. That's all a result of the curse. And none of that was by nature the way God intended his creation to operate. The intended state of God's design for creation is quite a bit different than that. So when Paul says that the creation has this longing, he's saying that the creation itself recognizes it's not in its proper state. It's broken, and it longs to be fixed. And Paul says in verse 20, the creation was subjected to this futility. Now, it's written in the passive tense, which then obscures the actor, But we know who the actor is because there's only one actor who could subject creation to this futility. The actor is God, of course. So what we're saying is this is the ultimate example of God allowing suffering, creating suffering. Because when someone tries to tell you that God is not responsible for suffering existing in the world, you need to remind them of where the curse came from. 
And it's the curse that brought death into existence, physical death. It's the curse that brought disease into existence. It's the curse that brought everything that we ultimately trace back to that's misery for us. So obviously the curse came as a result of Adam's sin, so we want to go a step further and credit Adam in that respect. But then a step further than that, you could credit Satan. But that doesn't change the fact that the Lord himself stepped in at that point and determined that the world would now be subjected to a state of futility. And you and I with it. And Paul says that the creation didn't accept the curse willingly. That is to say, is not the result of anything the creation itself did to deserve it. That's what it means when Paul says it was not subjected willingly. He's saying the creation didn't do anything wrong. Nevertheless, it was subjected to the curse. Just as God's children often find themselves under difficult circumstances that were of no fault of your own, nevertheless, you're in them, you're dealing with them, and God's appointed them. And Paul says that the world was subjected in this way by God in the hope that it would then one day be set free from slavery. You see that before and after again, as we saw in Isaiah's verse? First the suffering, then the freedom. First the bad thing, then the good thing. Paul's referring to God's ultimate plan, of course. That is, when Adam sinned, he brought sin into the life of all mankind. If that had been left unchecked, then Adam's mistake would have doomed all mankind to live with sin apart from God for eternity. And even if God were to act to redeem mankind from that sin, as he did through Christ, we'd still have sin in our corrupt bodies, and these bodies would have lived forever, because there was no source of death in the world, not at that point. So God stepped in to provide an escape from the sin that Adam produced and the consequences of that sin. And in a kind of ironic twist, the escape needed to be the death and the destruction of everything that was tainted. But in order to save us from that, he has a plan that, as you know, takes us out of the world before that destruction. So God acted to correct the problem. His solution required pain and suffering first to lead to glory. This is why. God pronounces a curse on the earth... And all flesh came from the earth. He did this to set up opportunity for those bodies to be replaced. He mandates their death so that he can have opportunity to replace them with something that wasn't tainted by sin. Likewise, the earth itself being tainted by the presence of sin in it is under the same curse. The earth itself will one day need to be replaced. You see the before and after again. Initially bad news, the world subjected to futility. Ultimately, good news, the world being done away with so that it is set free from that corruption. Now, can you make the comparison to your own situation here? For example, Lazarus suffered before receiving his reward. Jesus suffered before he received his reward. Creation suffers for a time before its day of redemption. You too, then, will know suffering for a time prior to the fullness of anticipating what you receive in the kingdom to come. You remember the example of childbirth I just used a minute ago, right? Look at Paul in verse 22. He makes the same analogy. It's not original. I can't say I made it up. He says the world is suffering the pains of childbirth. It's a reference to this theological principle that God brings suffering first to lead to something of glory. That he must deal with sin through a period of atonement and an anxious longing, a delayed result, a delayed fulfillment, so that he can ultimately bring the glory that is necessary. So that just begs the question. If there has to be a doing away with before I get the good thing, okay, that makes sense. Why the delay? Why must I have a delayed experience of suffering before I can have the good thing at the end? 
Well, the answer ultimately comes out of Hebrews 11. God has designed the plan of redemption so that no one will receive the glory that is promised apart from the rest of those who are included in God's plan. We all go into glory together, which means those who live earlier in this age must wait for those who will come later in the age. And the creation itself must wait throughout this entire period of humanity's being birthed and dying to allow all of those who are appointed to have their opportunity. So the futility of the creation must wait centuries. And the early generations of God's people must wait for the later generations of God's people. And even on an individual basis, we must wait for a period of our own lifetime so that we have the opportunity to do the work that God has appointed for us. If nothing else, to reproduce the next generation. Never mind any other ministry he might call us to as well. There's wait because there's purpose in the waiting. There's achievement of some kind God is at work doing. Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 11.39 And all these saints, speaking of the Old Testament saints, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. So the saints of old never received what they had promised, the writer says. Not yet. Speaking of the things they're supposed to inherit in the kingdom. Why haven't they received it yet? Well, the writer says because God has something better for us, that is, for the saints of the New Testament. He has a plan to reveal His Son to us, to grant the earth for a time an opportunity to know of this Messiah, to receive His salvation. And so, apart from us and that work, the Old Testament saints could not be made perfect early. They had to do their part, go to the grave, and wait, as they still do now. The writer goes on to chapter 12, as you might remember, and starts in verse 1 saying, So because we have such a great cloud of witnesses, it's a, a bit of a play on words. A cloud refers to the fact that they're all in spirit form. They haven't received their bodies yet. They're still waiting because they don't get them until we get them. They're a cloud of witnesses waiting. But because they're up there waiting, they're waiting for us to finish this process, we have an obligation to serve as they served, to follow in their footsteps. That's the fundamental reason why suffering precedes glory. You must live in a sinful body before you can occupy a sinless one. You must live a life on a sinful earth before you have opportunity to enter into the life of the kingdom. You must all wait for the arrival of that kingdom because you all spend the same amount of time in it. It's a thousand-year kingdom for everybody. Not just for Abraham, not just for us. So the only way everyone gets the same time there is if everyone shows up there on the same day. So it's got to be done in that way according to God's plan. No one gets there early. Paul says this principle can be pictured through childbirth, as I've already said. The pain of childbirth was something God instituted when he responded to the sin of woman. But when God brought pain to childbirth, he was granting women a blessing of sorts, that is, of carrying in their bodies an example of this theological principle that says we go through suffering for the sake of new life. For the glory that is to come, we suffer a little while. All mothers are able to give a living example of God's plan of redemption. That is, Christ had to suffer to make possible our spiritual birth and a life of glory, so women suffer to bring forth new life. God made that part of His creation, but He instituted the suffering to bring the whole world to glory. All right, so starting from an eternal perspective... We need to understand that what we're a part of is something God is doing in every aspect of creation, and it's a necessary quality to God's plan of redemption, for it's the only way in which He can encompass everybody and everything into the final result. Secondly, Paul now moves to discussing the meaning of suffering in a personal 
experience. What's in it for us? Yeah, I get the fact that he's got to save the world. Good for God. What about me? You know, that's the way, I know we don't say it that way because it's too, it's too authentic, it's too sincere. But, you know, when you're in the depths of some moment, the theology of what I'm going through won't necessarily help somebody in the midst of a moment of suffering, right? There, when you're in that mindset, it's inevitable. Here's you, and here's the world, and you just want everyone to think about your problem with you for a while. It's understandable, we all feel that way. So to that person, Paul says in 823, and not only this, you know, not only the big stuff, but also we, ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we, ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. This is the first part of what he's going to do here. I want to look at this for a moment before we move on. He says, we too suffer. Now when you hear this groaning phrase, sometimes too much is made of this word, unfortunately. It's just euphemism for suffering. In other words, suffering leads to groaning. And so he's simply describing the effect of suffering and labeling it in that way. So he's saying, we too groan, we too suffer under the burden of the curse that God put on the earth. Specifically, that curse as it affects our bodies. So we feel the weight of the curse that affects all creation. We feel it personally. You suffer sickness. The next time you get sick, you have a little object lesson right then and there over the curse that God pronounced. You're experiencing it in a very tangible way. And you don't have to be sick to feel it. If you have a little joint pain, that's the curse. If you have to toil at something and it's difficult and you sweat, that's the curse. If you have weakness... In some context, physical, emotional, intellectual, that's the curse. Are you getting older? That's the curse. Are we going to die one day? That's the curse. Paul says, we know these things. We experience these things. But notice he says, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That term, first fruits, it refers back to the requirements of the law given to Israel. In the law, a farmer provided his proper service of worship to the Lord was to offer back to the Lord the first produce that he pulled from his field every year that he harvested, the first fruits of that field. It was a way of acknowledging that God had provided everything to him, and so he was acknowledging God's grace and and mercy by giving a little bit back. It's where the concept of tithing came from. Paul uses that term to refer to the deposit God has made of the Holy Spirit in us. That's God's first fruits to us because it's just a down payment on what He has planned for us. I mean, think about this. If His own Spirit is a down payment, how big is the final payment? How much more can there, right? That's how God refers to His own Spirit in us. That's just a little down payment. He's the first fruits of our glory. Paul says, now, you and I have that first fruit. We have the Spirit in us. And he says, despite that, nevertheless, we will suffer. This one verse is the silver bullet that puts to death the prosperity gospel. Or any version of that lie which maintains that God wants you to be happy and rich and free of sickness and blah, 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 blah. Paul just said, in a nutshell, that ain't true. At least not while you live on earth in this body. He says, even though we have this relationship with God through the first fruits of the Spirit, even though we have that, we suffer. Which is a way of saying that's the natural state, even for the Christian. 
We groan within ourselves. We know that feeling. Even believers will have this experience. It's one God has ordained for all humanity because the curse affects all humanity. So just as God brought childbirth pains to women and brought the creation under a curse and brought Jesus the pain of the cross, He brings us suffering too. That's the nature of our state. But like creation itself, we bear up under that curse knowing that in a day to come, we will experience the redemption of our body, Paul says. Whenever you've heard me use the phrase, living with eyes for eternity, this is what we're talking about. This is what it means. It means not fixing your gaze on the problems or the temptations of this life to the exclusion of appreciating what the Lord is offering for us in eternity. Rather, what we're to do is live in the midst of suffering without allowing that suffering to define us or to obscure our hope for what is coming in the eternal. Too often, I've heard this from Christians. They'll respond to this basic theology that I'm teaching here. That is, keep your eyes on heaven. Don't worry about your problems. You know, this idea of not letting the world grind you down. They'll hear that and they'll, they'll respond to it. Oh, yes, yes, that's true. Because who can say that it's not? If you know the Bible, you, you would know that's true. But they'll say it in a kind of yes, but mentality. Yeah, we agree that the eternal place of our glory should be our focus and heaven is all that and so on. But they will say quickly after that, I still have to deal with my problems. right? I've still got things causing me issues that I have to contend with. And in a way, I think that's trying to have your cake and eat it too. Because of course you have to deal with what life brings you. Christ had to deal with the cross. right? Things happen. But look at how he dealt with it. For Christ, the suffering of the cross was not a problem to be solved. It was an experience to submit to for the good things God intended to use it for. That's a world of difference between saying, oh yes, I need to have my eyes on eternity, but you don't understand my situation. That's still somebody who's got their eyes down, even as they claim to have them up. Christ went to the cross acknowledging the necessity of it and embracing it, though it was a terrible thing to suffer. That should be our everyday approach to concerns we have too. They are not problems to be solved, even as we have to work to address them in one way or another. Rather, they are experiences to be submitted to in a trust that God is using them to produce something good for eternity. And in that, you can endure them, whether you can work them out or fix them or not. You'll endure them with a perspective that understands they have internal significance. More importantly, we don't begin to worry that they're a threat to our relationship with God because we know that God has sourced them. We have been saved, Paul says, by a hope, which is what? What's your hope? Well, ultimately, your hope is Christ will raise you from the dead just as he was raised from the dead. That's the hope we're talking about. And that hope is based on a promise that God has made. And so we take God at his word. He is trustworthy. So we have faith in his promise. That's our hope for resurrection. But it's still a hope because you haven't seen it happen yet. Therefore, Paul reminds us in verse 24 that we shouldn't be surprised that we don't see good things while we're waiting for our redemption because of the nature of what faith requires. Imagine this. Imagine at the point, if the plan of God had been structured so that at the point of your death, you were immediately resurrected and then jettisoned off to heaven like Elijah. Well, who after that would ever need faith? I've seen it happen. It doesn't require faith anymore. It's just a matter of timing. God has purposely delayed the moment of our resurrection until the time in which he does it for everyone in the same instant. So that for all generations of Christians, hope is still required. Faith is still the object. You cannot say you've seen resurrection. Not in the sense of the ultimate resurrection into a glorified body. We're all waiting for that same moment. 
Paul says, once you see it, it doesn't require faith anymore. And that's why to say that you're hoping for things in this life, that is freedom from suffering, freedom from trial, all of those good things that we hope for, that doesn't require faith. And when that becomes your focus of your thinking, the irony is that when you're hoping for things that you can see, it doesn't require faith, and if they don't materialize, you give up hope. Only those who are hoping in things that can't be seen have perseverance. You persevere for the hope of eternal life because you're not expecting to see it until the time that faith is no longer required. But if you're hoping for riches... Well, that hope is fleeting because as soon as you don't see it showing up in your bank account, you give up. When we demand that God present good things to us now, like those who preach the prosperity gospel will tell you, we stop operating in faith by definition. Because Paul says, who hopes for what he already sees? You see what money can do. You see where it comes from. You see how people obtain it. No faith is required. It's more like playing the lottery. So in truth, those of faith should expect to be without what we need in the body now. That is, we should not be expecting to get our good things in this life. We should expect to see them only in the eternal life. And don't trade that eternal hope for something of this world, because Paul says that doesn't constitute faith any longer. For the one who remains fixed in that way, though, they will live with perseverance. The believer who has his or her hope in eternal things will persevere in earthly suffering because we understand it can't touch what is waiting for us in eternity. It's like the mother who perseveres through childbirth because she knows where it's going. So ironically, the one who puts her hope in temporal things, prosperity, healing, or whatever, they're less likely to persevere. So we wait, he says, for our glory. And we don't wait alone. Chapter 8, verse 26, he says, these next two verses are going to rock your world. Guaranteed. Verse 26, in the same way... The Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now let me explain what he just said. He starts in the same way. In other words, in the same way as he just described us dealing with suffering, the Spirit works alongside us. And he works to support us through those moments of trial. When you feel like you can't go any longer in this world, when you feel like you have no hope, when there's no solution to your problem, when you can't see the goodness of God anymore, when you doubt his love for you, perhaps even your salvation, then the Spirit is interceding for you. When you don't even know how to pray, or more likely, when you're just not spending any time doing it, the Spirit is still praying for you. The Spirit of God is bringing petitions before the Lord on your behalf, interceding for you. That is a stunning revelation, I think, for most believers. I mean, is anyone in this room satisfied with their prayer life? If you are, you're lying. I mean, we all have that instinctive appreciation, right? We all realize we could pray more than we do. We should pray more than we do. And even when we're trying to pray, we're usually dissatisfied with the quality of what we're doing. It doesn't feel like we're really connecting sometimes and so on. It's an area of our walk we all wish we could do better in. Did you know that the Spirit is still working to intercede for you even when you're not interceding for yourself? And His intercession is far better than anything you'll ever do. For two reasons. He can communicate with the Father, Paul says, in ways too deep to even be expressed in words, so that even if you were inclined to pray in the way the Spirit does for you, you could not do it. You couldn't express what He expresses. You don't have the capacity to speak to God the way God can speak to Himself. And when He does pray, 
Paul says, he knows your heart even more fully than you know yourself. And on top of that, he knows the will of God perfectly. So when the Spirit prays on your behalf, he prays for exactly what you need, even things you don't know yourself that you need, even things you won't acknowledge that you need, and he prays in keeping with the will of God, so everything he prays for, he gets. Now here's what that means, though, before you're celebrating too much. It means he brings us through this life in ways that are perfectly suited to benefit us and please the Lord. Which means that when you and I were too busy pursuing the world instead of praying, or when we did pray, we prayed for selfish, stupid things, the Spirit was way ahead of us. He knows our heart so well. He knows the sin in our heart better than we do. And so what he was praying for, perhaps were circumstances to expose us, causing our sin to become known when we would have wished it didn't, and leading us into a confession moment we were trying to avoid. Or when we were getting spiritually lazy, He was praying to the Father to send us trials so that we could experience some suffering so that we would strengthen our walk. In other words, the suffering we know is sometimes, if not most of the time, the result of the Spirit interceding to bring us somewhere that we need to go so that we can please the Lord. Because we can't do it for ourselves, because we're not even aware enough, or much less willing enough, to tell the Lord, you know, I've been really lazy lately, would you just kick me in the rear really, really good? Take, you know, make, make, make something really bad happen tomorrow to me, Lord, I, I need it right now. Has anybody ever prayed that? I don't think so. So, in other words, the Lord is working to ensure that this world and all that it brings upon us is directed to our benefit, and the problem with our perspective is we don't realize how badly we need some of the bad things that come our way. This whole world of suffering is a gigantic learning laboratory that God uses while we're waiting to receive what is promised, and our job is to make the best of it by learning the lessons the Lord brings us while maintaining eyes for eternity knowing that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. I remember thinking this very thing, although not from a biblical point of view because I wasn't a believer. I went to the Air Force Academy, which is four years of hell intentionally. And not always, but most of the time. And military academies are all designed like that. They're just learning laboratories where they can really decide to try to figure out if you've got what it takes to be in the military. And plus it lets upperclassmen have something to blow off steam when they can make lowerclassmen miserable for hours at a time. And so you're just always miserable. And you're either overworked or underfed or stressed out or whatever. And the point of it is to just shock your system so that when you get out into the real world, you can handle anything that comes at you. That's their thinking. And I guess it works. I don't know. I assume it does. But my point is, at times in the midst of that, I'm thinking, you know, the suffering I'm going through right now is not going to be compared to the fun of being in the Air Force or flying a jet or whatever you're going to go do. You know, you're willing to put up with the suffering because of what's coming at the end of it. You have to take that same perspective into your life as a Christian. When you understand this principle properly, you begin to see everything that's happening in your life in a different and more spiritually mature way. You begin to understand God's control over everything that happens. And equally important, you appreciate the potential for good things to come even out of the worst experiences in your life. You don't have to be Pollyannish. You, know, you don't have to turn to everything that bad that happens in your life and put on a fake smile and just pretend it's all happy. We're not saying you don't feel it. Christ felt the cross. The point is he went through it understanding the good that could come from it. He was looking for the good in it in a way that only he could, of course. So just as 
Your own salvation came from God's dying in your place. What good things can come out of a moment of suffering in your own life? That's the question you should be asking. Paul summarizes this whole principle in one of the best-known passages of the New Testament, coming up next. In verse 828 and on, he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, many believers can probably quote Romans 8.28, which is a good thing, but... I think we also are prone to overlooking where it starts, and that is with those three words, and we know. Paul begins with an assumption, that is, that we understand and that we agree with this principle. It's almost as if he doesn't think he has to convince us of it. It's a foregone conclusion. How could he be so sure that we are at that point ourselves, as he opens up in this verse? Well, I think it's because it's the only natural conclusion you come to after appreciating the enormity of Romans 8, 1 through 27. If you understand what we just went through today and last week, the last time we, we met, then you understand that if God is in control of even the bad things in my life, all of it directed in His purpose for my benefit, knowing that the creation itself was appointed to suffering for the ultimate benefit of it being turned over into a better way, if God's got all of that under His hand, then there can be no other conclusion except that He is using everything for some good purpose. There can be no such thing as something bad God isn't using or controlling. For where would it come from? How can it be outside God's purview? And notice the language Paul uses at verse 28 onward. Paul says God is not passive in the time we spend on earth. It's not as though some describe God as he's spun the top, so to speak. He set the world spinning and then he stood back and he's just been waiting to see how it all turns out. That's a completely atheistic view of God. It's self-contradictory. Either there is a God or isn't. And if he is, he's in control. Or if he's not, he doesn't exist. Paul says he's not passive. He's active. He is causing. word in Greek is an active word. Causing things to do what they do. He works. He intercedes. He brings to a purposeful and intentional end the things that are happening around us. But notice there's an important caveat in that verse. Paul says God is working in these ways for the good of those who love him those who are called according to his purpose. So there are the haves and the have-nots in God's economy. The believer will find in their life all circumstances, even the very bad ones, have been appointed by God and are used by God to bring about outcomes for their benefit in eternity. But in the case of an unbeliever, God is no less in control, but his purpose is not to bring them good, eternally speaking. There'd be no purpose in God causing things to happen for good in the life of someone who's not going to also be called into a relationship with Him because that person will never be able to take advantage of any of that good outcome. I mean, imagine if God was turning things to good for the rich man in the story of of Luke 16. Why would He do that if He has no plans to also call the man into faith? He just ends up in the bad place anyway. It, It makes no sense. So the confidence that you and I have in God's plans for us through everything we experience, that confidence is limited to those who are gods or who will one day be gods in an appointed day. That's saying this. You cannot go around to the unbelieving world telling them that everything is going to be okay in the end. You cannot tell them that God is on their side. That's a false set of assurance for the unbeliever. You have to tell them instead the gospel. You have to explain to them that Romans 8.28 will become true for them 
if in fact they accept Christ. But short of that, you can give them no such assurance that things will work out well. In fact, things will work out very, very badly for them. If not here, as it was with the rich man, certainly afterward. So as you reach 8.28, you come to understand that as we wait patiently in the hope for our resurrection, nothing we face here on earth is a threat to that outcome. Nothing. Life can be hard. It's going to have trials. The enemy will bear down on you in his own way as he has opportunity. But none of that comes between you and God. Nothing can frustrate your hope. Nothing has the power to stop the good that God is intending to bring. The worse things get, that's just a sign of how hard God is working to bring more good things. I mean, it's really, it's a good general rule. If you're suffering a lot, it means you're hard-headed. I'm not joking. I mean, spiritually speaking... If you're going through a lot of trial, it means there's something stuck in your heart and God's found the way to get it out, but it's requiring a lot of extra effort. And you can see this in your own life. When you're in a soft-hearted time of life and you're learning and you're listening to God, you don't find yourself being dragged through things in the same way as perhaps in other times of life. When you're resistant to the Spirit's movement and you're determined to have your own way and you're just not in the mind of Christ, you're in the flesh, and God just starts banging away at you. You know, he's going to get through to you one way or the other. I always say there's an easy way and there's a hard way. And God is in the business of making us more like Christ, as Paul said in the passage I read. That his point is that Christ would be the first among many brethren. That is, he is the archetype against which everyone else is judged and in God's way will be conformed to. There's an easy way to do that and there's a hard way to do that. Understanding what Paul's saying here as he goes on from 8.28 into the foreknowledge and the predestination and so on. This is his crescendo. This is his final climactic statement for what God's sovereignty in all matters of our life means for us from an eternal perspective. But to understand what Paul says in Romans 8.29-30 through 30 properly rests on two things. First, are you keeping Paul's point in mind? That is, what has this whole chapter been about? Where has it been leading? What's his point? Keep that in mind. Don't stray into these alleys of conversation that sometimes come out of these individual words and you'll be okay. And then secondly, are you willing to read the words and accept their plain meaning without explaining their meanings away or in some novel or an imaginative way? Are you willing to just accept what they say? If you do that, you'll come away with something meaningful. So let's begin with some observations. First, in Romans eight twenty nine and 30, there's an obvious chain of events being described here, right? He's connecting his chain here with the linking word also. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then later in verse 30, and these he predestined, he also called. And these he called, he also justified. You see the chain there, right? It's a linkage of events. God is the actor in this chain. Notice Paul repeats he before every verb in the chain. He did this, he did that, right? So the actor for all of these events is God. So... To put it simply, God does one thing, and then he follows with another thing, always for the same group of people. And each link in that chain is as certain as the previous link, according to Paul. So if the first link is true, then all the links that follow will be true. Paul never inserts a conditional phrase or thought in this chain. So if the first is true, the last will be. But by the same token, if the last is true for someone then all the prior links were also true. In other words, look at the very end of verse 30. No one who will be glorified will not also have been predestined. You follow that? There's no getting to the end of the chain except moving through the whole of it. 
That's the first observation. Second observation. Paul is using these verses to support his earlier statements, right? This is a concluding crescendo of thought. That means he's trying to work the thought of you have no bad experiences in life that can undo your relationship with God. Everything you have with Christ is secure. That's been the main point he's been working down. You see that clearly when you look at the next verse, verse 31, which I haven't read yet, where he says, well, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Right? That's the ultimate conclusion here is there's no one out there that's going to interfere with our relationship with God. So clearly Paul wants to reassure the reader that what God has begun in our life, what he started doing, he will certainly finish since all the work is His to do, and by starting it, He has shown us a willingness to do it all. In fact, if any link in that chain could be seen to be in doubt, as if it's not necessarily a given, well then, the entire chain is in doubt, and if the entire chain is in doubt, then Paul's point is moot. What confidence has He offered us in that case? If the entire chain is unbreakable, then Paul's assurance is clear. If any part of it is breakable, his assurance is empty and worthless. So you can only be assured of God's faithfulness and sovereignty if everything in life ties back to his work. Every link in that chain has to be an absolute certainty. So let's look at the chain. First, who's the chain about? Well, it's not all mankind. No, because the people in view in this chain are the same ones who have been in view in verse 28, that is, Christians. So we're talking here about believers. Now, you may have thought that's obvious, but you'd be surprised. Some people will use the argument that Paul's talking here in more general terms about mankind. But in doing that, they make it meaningless, because clearly not all mankind is going to heaven. Now, this is speaking specifically to what God does for the believer. And he says, God foreknew. A lot's made of this word when you hear people debating the meaning of this, of this passage. Prognosco is the word in Greek. It's where we get the word prognosticate from. It means to understand the future with certainty. God understood, he understands everything before it exists. So his understanding predates knowledge itself. He knew Christians before time began. Another way to say it is, we were on his mind before we had a mind. Foreknowledge is a understanding of things before they come to pass. Secondly, for everyone he foreknew... He also predestined, it says, to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. Now this is where a careful observation of plain language comes in. It says those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now notice those are two different words. They are two different words in Greek as well as in English. They are not the same word. And that's important because here again, a common mistake in understanding this passage is to blur the lines between foreknowledge and predestination so as to suggest they're really the same word. That is, God foreknew who was going to be believing, and in foreknowing who was going to be believing, He then chose all those who were going to be believing. But that's just two uses of the word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is to know something in advance, but the word predestined is a very specific word. It means to determine beforehand. In other words, to know something beforehand versus to act before something. So, one of my favorite uses of this word comes in a passage of Acts. In Acts 4.27, when Stephen is talking, he says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of God, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And what Stephen's saying in that context is, God had intended Jesus would die on the cross. 
His death was no accident. It wasn't bad luck. It didn't happen at the whim of Pontius Pilate. It didn't happen because the Jews conspired against Jesus. It happened because God predetermined that it would happen. So it was determined by God that something would happen. The word pre simply means God determined it before it happened. There was a determination made by God of a certain set of events. He determined them before they occurred, predetermined, predestined. And then they occurred as God determined they would. That's predestination, predetermining something. His foreknowledge was in the sense that he understood before any of that plan why he wanted to do it, how it would play out to his advantage, why it was necessary. So it's something like the way you might plan a vacation. You determine where you want to go and why and all of that in your mind. You have a predetermined idea or you have a foreknowledge of where you want to go and why. And then you start making reservations, which in a sense are predetermining where you're going to stay and what events you're going to participate in. It's not exactly the same because we don't make it happen until we actually go through with it, I understand. But in the sense of separating the two words, there's the thinking about it, the understanding of it, and then there's the doing something about it. That's the difference in these words. But they both are future state. Knowing in advance, acting in advance. God knew us before there was anything, and then he acted before there was any action in our lives. And Stephen uses the same word to describe how God predetermined Christ's death before the men who carried it out were ever involved. God predetermined that those he foreknew would be what? What did he predetermine? He says that we would be conformed to the image of of his son. Image here means likeness or representation. So to be conformed to his likeness means to be like Christ. The word in Greek can actually be used to describe the way you do an imprint on a coin, how you make a mark on a coin, how you make that impression on on metal. So in a sense, God is stamping out little Christs, which is where the word Christian comes from. So we are to be conformed to his likeness. There's no other way to understand that than to understand it to be a predetermining of coming into faith, a predetermining of believing, a predetermining of being saved, because that's how you become conformed to Christ. That's what it means to be conformed to Christ, to be Christ-like. To be conformed to His likeness was something God determined for each of us beforehand. He foreknew us, and He predetermined us for that outcome. He also predetermined us to join in His suffering. He also predetermined us to join in His glory. Remember, Paul's point here is that nothing can stop this chain of events. If God knew you to be one of His from before anything existed, and then on top of that, He assigned you to become like His Son before any of the events of your life began to transpire, then how can anything in this world interrupt the plan that began before the world itself began? You see, the uselessness of worry under those circumstances, his whole point in raising this chain of events is to give you evidence of the larger point, which is you have nothing to worry about. How can you worry about something God determined beforehand, before the world existed? That's how Paul brings this chain to conclusion in the next verse. Called, justified, glorified. Those are the parts of the experience we will know personally. Those are the parts that we have something to experience. We, we experience the call. It just comes to us in one way or another. It can be someone who brings the gospel to us along the street or in church or on TV or whatever. Somehow God brought the call to us when it was his choice to do so. And as we accepted it, we were justified. We remember that moment. And there is a day to come when we will be glorified. God determined to conform you to his son's likeness. And so naturally, at a time he appointed, he began to act to bring it to pass so that you would answer that call, so that you would be justified by 
faith. He has been describing a chain of events that led to your salvation. And for every believer who's ever read this letter, the letter to Rome, including you tonight, you can look back on every step in this chain as part of your personal history except for one of these links. Every believer, ever since this letter's been written, has been in the same place you are right now. We can look at every one of these links and we know them as our history except for one. The step of glorification has yet to be fulfilled for any believer, even those who died in the first century. Every believer sits right now in history at the same point on this chain. Whether you're alive or dead, we're all waiting for glorification. Paul wants every believer to be just as assured of that future state as you are of all the history that preceded it. If you're sure you were foreknown and predestined and called and justified, well then you can be just as sure in the last link because it's an unbreakable chain. And the fact that we haven't seen that last link, none of us have, that's why we call it hope. That's why it depends on faith. But it's just as assured as the rest. That's his point for the chain. is so that you know that we're part of a process that already is four-fifths of the way finished. Why start doubting on the last fifth? Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1 as I finish. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So what's there to worry about? Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for that assurance for the plan that you've spelled out so clearly in Scripture so that we'd have no cause to worry. Forgive us, Father, for stubbornness in the face of the things you've asked us to change, Father, and thank you for your persistence in the way you you bring trial as as needed or other events into our life so that we will change. We thank you, Father, for the Spirit's intercession. What a comfort it is to know that even when we're falling short in our own prayer life, the prayers are still being lifted up. And, Father, Thank you most of all, Father, for the assurance we have because of Christ's perfection. So in those days when we feel particularly imperfect, particularly weak, particularly unworthy, we can look back on what Christ has done and we can look forward to where we will be with Him and we can forget our weaknesses and trust in Your strength. We thank You for that most of all, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.